Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 128 of the GDPR Weekly Show, and coming up in this week's episode, we have a look at the implications of Pimito Plumbers to make COVID-19 vaccination mandatory for their employees. We then turn our minds to Brexit and we look at which countries the EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, has considered adequate for compliance with GDPR. We then have a look at data adequacy and the Channel Islands and in particular Guernsey. We then had results of a survey which showed that across Europe in the last 12 months GDPR penalties have increased by 39% and we then have news from the ICO that they are to resume their investigation into contextual advertising and the ad tech industry. We then cross the Republic of Ireland, where the government in Ireland is to appoint specialists to oversee data access requests from survivors of the mother and child homes. We then return to UK and to Hackney, where postal voters have been asked to register again following the data breach in Hackney, which we previously reported on. And we then stay with councils and travel to East Devon, where East Devon District Council has had a data breach revealing the passwords of its councillors. We then move back to London and central government, and the UK Ministry of Defence has seen an increase in the number of data breaches in the last year. Staying in the UK, we then have news of a data breach at construction company Amy. And then we have a training article to give you an update on when a data breach does not need to be reported to the ICO or the Data Commissioner. We then move to Spain, where Toyota Bank has been fined €6 million Euros for GDPR breaches. And we then travel across to the USA, where clothing retailer Bonobos has had a data breach. And staying in the US, we also look at a data breach at image processing app Pixlr. We then travel to the west coast of the USA and look at the CPRA, which is coming into force in California. And then finally this week, we return to the UK and have the judgment from a court case, which was asked to examine the territorial application of GDPR for a UK citizen to a website in the US. So as always, a mix of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in them useful and informative. And as always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever we can, we incorporate your suggestions into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not possible to reply to each piece of feedback individually. Stay in. Stay safe. Charlie Mullins of Pimlico Plumbers hit the news this week uh, because he decided to make it a rule of employment at his company, Pimlico Plumbers, that all of their plumbers had to have had the vaccination for COVID-19. And this raised two interesting questions. One, legally, whether he was able to do that. And secondly, it does raise some GDPR implications too. If you're thinking of recording whether your employees have had their COVID-19 vaccinations, then you do need to think very carefully. And the reason for that is, is that GDPR have rules that you can only hold information on your employees which you have a good reason to hold based on one of the legal bases. Now, if you're operating a registered nursing home or a care home or a children's home or another care setting, 
then I think you probably could argue that you have a justifiable reason for recording on an employee's HR records whether they've had the COVID-19 jab or not. I don't think that holds true, though, in this case with Pimlico Plumbers, because it's hard to argue that having a COVID-19 vaccination, however welcome it is, and however welcome Charlie Mullins might find it himself and might want to record against his plumbers, is not a required qualification for being a plumber. And since legislation in this country, in the UK, does not dictate that people have to have a vaccination, the choice is up to them. And while I would fully support the government's message and say that I would urge everyone to take the vaccination who possibly can, you can't make somebody do it. And I don't think you can make somebody do it by the threat of holding the future of their employment over their head. So my personal view is that on the first rule of can he do it, I think he's risking many industrial tribunals and potential costs, although it's always possible, of course, that Pimlico plumbers view the publicity they got from this to be worth any cost that might come. But secondly, is the GDPR implication. Can you record that information? It's been made clear that having the COVID-19 vaccination is to be treated as medical data, as you might expect, and so you can only store that information where you have a legal basis to do so. And hopefully, it's done by David Care Homes, etc., would give you an idea where it would be viable. Another place, I guess, would be hygiene assistance in a dental surgery, or indeed the dentists themselves. So I'm not saying you can't record information. I'm just saying be very careful, because if you record it and you have no right to record it, and something happens in the future where that employee presents a data subject access request for all the information that you store on them, then you could find yourself in a very tricky situation. So. As always, if you're unsure about something like that, please do get in touch with us. You can do that by using the contact details coming up in a few moments, or you can join us over on Clubhouse, the new social media platform, where we are now holding a regular GDPR surgery every Thursday from 4pm to 5.30pm UK time, where you can come along and ask any question and get an answer live on air. But of course, you can still contact us in the traditional ways, and details of that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. I mentioned in last week's episode about GDPR and the effect here in the UK now that we've left the European Union, and I raised the whole question of whether the EDPB will find the UK an adequate country in terms of European GDPR to be able to enable free exchange of data between the UK and the EU to continue past the end of April 2021 or assuming it's extended by both parties the end of June 2021. And this raised a number of questions to our help desk about which countries were currently regarded as adequate countries by the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB. And so the list is as follows. Andorra, Argentina, Canada, but only for commercial organisations, the Faroe Islands, Guernsey, Israel, the Isle of Man, Japan, Jersey, New Zealand, Switzerland and Uruguay. So that is the list which the UK hopes to join before the end of June 2021. And we will, of course, keep you updated on progress on that 
as we become aware of it in upcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4pm UK time. Just a quick add-on to the previous article, and I just want to centre for a moment on the islands of Guernsey, one of the Channel Islands, which is a crown dependency of the UK, but not actually part of the UK. As you will have heard in the previous article, Guernsey already is accepted as an adequate country by the EDPB, and that adequacy agreement is up for renewal at the end of 2021 although every expectation is that it will continue. What perhaps isn't so well known is that there's a similar adequacy agreement between the UK and Guernsey, because the Channel Islands have never actually been part of the European Union. That separate data adequacy agreement between the UK and Guernsey also runs out at the end of 2021, and there is some speculation that if the EU does not find the UK to be an adequate country, as far as data is concerned, then Guernsey may not find the UK to be an adequate country as far as data is concerned either. Now, of course, the same may come true of Jersey, the other significant Channel Island, although the situation regarding Jersey is more unclear. So just as we're keeping an eye on the adequacy negotiations between the UK and the EU, we're also keeping a watching brief on the adequacy negotiations between the UK and Guernsey and Jersey. And once again, of course, we will keep you up to date on that as we go through 2021 with regular updates here on the GDPR Weekly Show. If you don't think that you have to worry too much about GDPR, then perhaps you should pay attention to a survey recently issued by legal firm DLA Piper LLP, which discovered that in 2020, the penalties issued for GDPR breaches increased by some 39% on the year before. The company found that under GDPR, the first 20 months of the regulations saw fines totaling 114 million euros. The last 12 months have seen fines totaling 158.5 million euros. Now, whilst data protection regulators across Europe have perhaps relaxed a little while the COVID pandemic has been affecting the wider economy, I think it's fair to say that with the advent of vaccines and with hopefully, and we all, I'm sure, hope for this, COVID-19 coming under control and business returning something towards being normal, then their observations are going to increase. And as a result, I think it's fair to expect that the penalties will also increase and the penalties given in 2021 as a total for the whole 12 months will almost certainly be higher than the total penalties given out in 2020. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4pm UK time. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, we're returning now to something that we last mentioned in episode 116. At that time, the UK Information Commissioner's Office suspended its investigation into real-time bidding and contextual advertising because of COVID-19 and the impact that was having not just on the ICO themselves, but also in the wider economy. However, on Friday 22nd of January, the ICO announced that it's restarted its investigation of ad tech practices that since 2018 have been subject to stores of complaint across Europe under GDPR. It's argued that the high-velocity trading of internet users' personal data can't possibly be compliant with GDPR's requirements such information is adequately secured. 
Other concerns are whether there is consent freely given and also the use of sensitive information such as health data, religious and political affiliation and sexual orientation when deciding on the programmatic advertising. In an update, ICO Deputy Commissioner Simon McDougall, who takes care of regulatory innovation and technology, said that the eight-month freeze is over and audits are coming. We have now resumed our investigation, he said, enabling transparency and protecting vulnerable citizens of priorities for the ICO. The complex system of real-time bidding can use people's sensitive personal data to serve adverts and requires people's explicit consent, which is not happening right now. Sharing people's data with potentially hundreds of companies without properly assessing and addressing the risk to those counterparties also raises questions around the security and retention of the data. He went on to say, Our work will continue with a series of audits focusing on digital market platforms and we will be issuing assessment notices to specific companies in the coming months. The outcome of these audits will give us a clearer picture of the state of the industry. Mr McDougall went on to say, the investigation is vast and complex, and because of the sensitivity of the work, there will be times where it won't be possible to provide regular updates. However, we are committed to publishing our final findings once the investigation is concluded. Commenting on the ICO's continued reluctance to take enforcement action against ad tech despite mounds of evidence of breaches, Johnny Ryan, a senior fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, who was involved in filing the first batch of real-time bidding GDPR complaints and continues to be a vocal critic, of the action against ad tech said it seems to me that the facts are clearly set out in the ICO's mid-2019 ad tech report. Indeed that report merely confirms the evidence that accompanies our complaints in September 2018 in Ireland and UK. It's therefore unclear why the ICO requires several months more. Nor is it clear why the ICO accepted empty gestures from the IAB and indeed Google a year ago. Ms McDougall said that the ICO is continuing to work with the Competition and Markets Authority, particularly in an investigation into Google's privacy sandbox proposals, which would phase out support for third-party cookies on the Chrome browser. We will obviously watch this with interest, and during 2021 we'll bring you updates on the ICO investigation into ad tech whenever we receive updates either from the ad tech industry or from the ICO themselves. The scandal regarding mother and baby home survivors in the Republic of Ireland has filled many inches of newspaper columns this week. And it's now been announced that the Irish government is to hire external data protection specialists to provide advice on requests for access to personal records from mother and baby home survivors. The tender states that the specialists performing this task will need to determine whether the release of personal data could prejudice the effective operation of future commissions of inquiry and the cooperation of witnesses. It also notes that the engagement is ongoing between the Department, the Office of the Attorney General and the Data Protection Commissioner to ensure that personal data can be made available to individuals in compliance with the legal framework. The contractor will be required to provide specialist expertise on an ongoing, as required basis as the Department manages potentially large volumes of requests from survivors following transfer of records from the Commission. They will work closely with the Department's Information Management Unit on the application of GDPR rules and will act in an advisory capacity in relation to access issues and balancing rights. Confirmation of the move came as the Irish government continued to receive sharp criticism for its handling of the Mother and Baby Homes report. The Department of Children has been accused of laziness for failing to deliver hard copies of the report to survivors. The Committee on Children and Youth Affairs had a private 90-minute meeting with the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Dorman, yesterday. If we have any further updates on this situation, 
we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 113, we mentioned about a data breach at Hackney Council in London. As a consequence of that data breach, Hackney Council instructed postal voters to re-register this week over fears that they may no longer be registered to vote after the cyber attack. Hackney Council remained firm that although there is no evidence that any postal voting data was stolen in the attack, they are urging anyone to re-register their postal vote to ensure they don't miss the opportunity to vote in the local election, hopefully coming up in May 2021, top ID19 allowing. Voters will still be able to vote in person if they decide not to re-register their postal vote, although Hackney Council are encouraging more postal votes than usual this year to account for social distancing at polling stations. The Council continue to work with government agencies to ensure that their systems are secure now and in the future. Chief Executive of Hackney Council and Electoral Registration Officer Tim Shields said, I'm really sorry for the additional disruption that this attack by organised criminals is continuing to cause our residents and I share their anger and frustration. I know that many people may be concerned about their personal data, but there is no evidence to suggest that their postal vote registration data has been stolen or published online. Due to coronavirus, voting will be different this year and we encourage as many people as possible to vote by post to reduce pressure on polling stations and the social distancing we will need to follow to help keep everyone safe. If we receive any further updates on this from Hackney Council, we will of course bring it to you in the next episode of the GDPR Witch Show. Another council in the news this week is East Devon District Council, where a significant password data breach has been slammed as a wake-up call and an example of poor practice. Passwords used by some of the 60-strong East Devon District Council were made available to other councils as a result of a data breach that was uncovered at the start of November 2020. Swift action was taken to rectify the breach, with councillors having their passwords reset and passwords were not visible to the public at any stage. The password information pertained to Office 365 users and also the AirWatch software which the council uses. It's understood that Strata, East Devon District Council's IT provider, at some stage had taken the decision to add both the AirWatch and Outlook 365 passwords to individual councillor profiles and as such the data breach meant passwords were available to other members of the council. Details confirming East Devon's use of both the AirWatch and Office 365 platforms were publicly available in documents in the Council's website prior to the data breach occurring. The Cabinet of East Devon District Council met on Wednesday night this week to consider the breach and heard that because some members were able to see passwords, it represented a technical data protection breach and that it was also clearly poor practice not to protect sensitive information for those who weren't entitled to see it. Strata had also contacted Dorothy that there was no public visibility of the password information and that the likelihood of council passwords and emails being compromised by other councillors appeared to be very low. Nonetheless, the Cabinet said that the issue was a wake-up call and that the inability for councillors to set their own passwords had been raised as far back as May 2019 but had never been actioned by Strata. It's understood that all the passwords were held on a spreadsheet albeit one that had only very limited access, and the council's monitoring officer, Henry Gordon Lennox, when compiling his report, found he was unable to access. Councillor Paul Miller, who discovered the breach, said it was a very sad situation and that he was not being a captain hindsight about his concerns. Asked to explain how he discovered the data breach, Councillor Miller said he was on his Android phone on Office 365 in his emails and he discovered another councillor's password was visible on their profile. He said he then checked his own profile and his password was visible and thought that it could be the same for others and immediately reported the issue to Strata. 
Lawrence Whitlock, Strata IT Director, in his report to the Cabinet, said such incidents are treated seriously by Strata. It is clear that once notified of the disclosure, Strata reacted very quickly and professionally in mitigating the risk and identifying the root cause. The key critical point is that it can be confirmed that external visibility of the parcel information by individuals were residing outside of the Strata provisioned Office 365 environment would not have been possible, primarily because of the secure way in which Strata Office 365 has been designed, built and deployed. Hence, Strata can confirm categorically that there is no public visibility to the password information. In addition, the likelihood of council passwords and emails being compromised by other councillors appears very low, and any misuse of the password information would have been in contravention of the Computer Misuse Act 1990. He added, there is no evidence to suggest that there has been any unauthorised or malicious use of the passwords during the log period of August 11, 2020 until November 13, 2020, in all likelihood, had there been any unauthorised activity prior to the log period, this would have continued during the log period itself. Based on Strata's investigation, coupled with Strata's determination of the likely time frame when the passwords were actually visible, it is Strata's professional judgment that in reality the likelihood of passwords having been compromised by other councillors is very low. Strata reported the incident to the ICO, who have reviewed the case, and due to the speed of the Strata response and the controls in place, the ICO have concluded that no further action is necessary and the case has been closed. The route towards the incident was rapidly identified by Strata and corrective measures put in place to immediately, and there was no wider risk to the Council's IT system. Councillor John Loudon, in recommending that Cabinet note the report, also called for the Devon Audit Partnership to carry out an audit of Strata's processes and for the South West Audit Partnership to take a look at East Devon's data posts. He said that would go some way to reassure and to answer the question of whether or not we want further independent reassurance. In a statement, the ICO said it appears that the information was exposed to a limited number of people and technical logs have shown there was no incorrect access to the data. This could reduce the risk to data subjects. The personal data breach is not likely to result in a high risk to data subjects and it appears that the council has the appropriate technical security measures in place to protect the personal data they process. After discovering the incident, steps have been taken to remove the information and to synchronise the system that contained the breach and additional steps have been taken to change passwords to prevent any unauthorised access. The root cause of the incident was process-based and it's been noted that the process has been changed recording information to prevent another incident of this nature and it is noted that all sensitive data has been removed which could reduce the risk of information being disclosed. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday 4pm UK time. To UK's central government now and the Ministry of Defence has seen an 18% rise in incidents potentially involving personal data loss. According to official figures, in total, there were 546 reported incidents of potential data breaches in the most recent financial year, up from 463 in the previous year. Seven incidents were serious enough that they had to be referred to the ICO for further investigation. The information, contained in the MOD's recently published annual report and analysed by the Parliament Street think tank, raises questions about security risks facing public sector organisations. Breaking down the data breaches, there were 49 reports classified under the loss of inadequately protected electronic equipment, devices or paper documents from secured government premises, and an additional 19 incidents reported from outside government premises. There were also 450 incidents logged under the general category of unauthorised disclosure. In July 2019, the subcontractor incorrectly disposed of MOD-originated material, leading to unauthorised disclosure of the personnel and health data of two former employees. Meanwhile, in December 2019, criminal investigation files were lost during an archiving process, potentially placing 16 individuals at risk. 
In March last year, a whistleblowing report that had not been properly anonymised was issued. Although the document was deleted 32 hours after issue, it placed the personal security of at least nine individuals at risk. Founded in 2011, Parliament Street is one of the UK's leading think tanks. Its cybersecurity team liaises with leading lawyers, politicians and industry experts to identify security risks posed to UK businesses. Construction group Amy was hit by a cyber attack in December as most. Amy systems were hit by what is believed to be a ransomware attack, become the latest in a line of companies including Interserve, Boydia's UK and Bam Construct, all in the construction sector. It's understood that the company was targeted by hackers using ransomware mid-December. They started posting documents including correspondence the firm had with government departments online just after Christmas. A spokesman for Amy said on December 15th, Amy became aware of a complex IT security incident during which a portion of our data was compromised with reported incidents in the Information Commissioner's Office, the National Centre for Cyber Security and the National Crime Agency. The spokesman added, the incident was addressed promptly and we have been working with world-leading cybersecurity experts throughout the incident and continue to work with clients to keep any disruption to a minimum. The ICO confirmed that the report has been received from Amy and if we receive any further update either from Amy or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Based on tools to our helpline, we've been asked to provide some examples of good and bad GDPR practice. So we thought we'd begin with an example of when it's not necessary to notify the ICO of a data breach. So if we take a fictional scenario where the computer systems of a small company are exposed to a ransomware attack and data stored in those systems, which was encrypted, is stolen. The data controller uses encryption at rest, so all the data accessed by ransomware would have been encrypted using a state-of-the-art encryption algorithm, and importantly, the decryption key is not compromised in the attack. The company discovers the breach and brings in an external cybersecurity company, such as ourselves, to investigate the incident. Logs tracing all data flows leaving the company, including outbound email, are available. After analysing the logs and the data collected by the deception of the company is deployed, an internal investigation supported by the external cybersecurity company determines there is certainty that the perpetrator only accessed the encrypted data and wasn't able to get the key. The logs show no outward data flow in the time frame of the attack. The personal data affected by the breach relates to clients and employees of the company, totaling a few dozen individuals altogether. A backup was readily available and data was restored a few hours after the attack took place. The breach did not result in any consequence on the day-to-day operation of the controller. There was no delay in employee payments or handling client requests. So in this example, although it's quite a serious data breach, there's absolutely no requirement to notify the ICO. The reasons for that, firstly, the incident was detected quickly and the decision was taken to bring in external guidance, which is of course something we would always recommend. The amount of data stolen was relatively limited and it was encrypted. And crucially, the key to decrypt it had not been stolen. In addition to that, good backups of the system were held and so it was possible to just restore good data to a good name position from the backup. And finally, there was no impact on employees or clients of the company. So put all those things together, and although what at first might seem quite a serious data breach, it's actually very controlled, very well handled. A is good example, we would say, of how situations like this should be handled. And although, obviously, the data breach would require entry in the company's own data breach register, there was absolutely no requirement at all to involve the ICO 
in the handling of this data breach. We hope you found that useful and we're going to bring you more examples like this in the coming weeks as we go through 2021. If you have any suggestions for particular GDPR-related situations you'd like us to cover in these sessions, then please let us know by getting in touch with us via the contact details that are coming up in a few moments or by joining our weekly GDPR surgery on Clubhouse and asking your question directly live there and getting an answer straight on the spot. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. To Spain now, and the Spanish data regulator is rapidly building a reputation for itself of imposing strict GDPR penalties. Only a few weeks ago, it imposed what was at the time the largest sanction ever imposed by the Spanish Data Protection Authority when it fined BBVA 5 million euros. And now this week, it's exceeded that with a new sanction, this time of 6 million euros, against another Spanish bank, Caeza Bank. The AEPD, the Spanish Data Protection Authority, discovered that Caeza Bank had a number of infringements of GDPR and it sanctioned Toyota Bank with 2 million euros for a slight infraction of Articles 13 and 14 of GDPR and with 4 million euros for a very serious infraction of Article 6. The proceedings go back to 2018 when a user of the bank received a notification in his mobile banking app informing them that they had to accept new terms regarding data protection. The claimant then explained to the AEPD that Toyota Bank is considering transferring the data of its customers to all the companies of the banking group and that in order to cease the person's data by each of these companies, those affected will have to go to each one, one at a time. In the claimant's opinion, this requirement was disproportionate, as stated in the resolution of the AEPD, as it was understood that the transfer was accepted in a single act. For this reason, the Spanish Data Protection Authority initiated a sanctioning procedure through which it began to investigate the privacy policy of the bank. In 2019, the Consumer Association, FACUA, filed a second complaint against Toyota Bank on the understanding that the framework contract signed by customers and through which the entity collects personal data are an addition contract whose content cannot be negotiated by the customer. Now, AEPD has issued the historic sanction ruling that Toyota Bank has violated Article 6, 13 and 14 of GDPR. The reasoning is that the entity would have failed to meet the requirements for the provision of valid consent and there were deficiencies in the process enabled to obtain such this consent. In addition, the APD states that there was an illicit transfer of personal data to other companies in the group. In addition, the APD also stated that information offered in the different documents and channels to the bank was not uniform, and imprecise terminology was used to define the privacy policy. Nor did it detail the charities of personal data would be subject to treatment, or the purpose of the treatment, or the legal basis that would protect it. It is not uniform, even in terminology, it is not offered with the same amplitude to all customers and in all situations, and it is not updated in the same way in each case, states the AEPD. In its defence, the bank argued that the duty of information was fulfilled with the framework contract and not with the rest of the document. In the legal basis explored by the AEPD, the agency also discusses that all the companies of the Chaitza Bank Group contemplate a co-responsibility in the treatment of the data that could be considered lawful to share profiles amongst all the companies in the group. For all these reasons, Toyota Bank has to pay a sanction of €6 million, Euros, against which, as the control body also points out, an appeal can be lodged through the administrative channel. Given the size of the penalty, I think it's likely that Toyota Bank will appeal, and we'll keep an eye on the case and bring you updates as we progress through 2021, right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay in. Stay safe. 
to America now, and US men's clothing retailer Bonobos has had 70 gigabytes of customer data stolen and posted on a hacking forum. The data includes the names and telephone numbers associated with 7 million customers or orders, 3.5 million records containing the last four digits of credit card numbers, and account information for 1.8 million customers, including passwords encrypted with the SHA-256 and SHA-512 hashing algorithms. One person who got hold of the stolen data said they had already tracked more than 150,000 passwords encrypted with SHA-256, the weaker algorithm of the two. We should point out this story has nothing to do with the French retailer Bonobo, which sells casual clothing to both men and women. Bonobo's customers have been recommended to change their passwords immediately, and if they've used the same password and username on other websites, to change the password on those sites as well to protect themselves from credential stuffing attacks. Bonobos have confirmed that the data is genuine, but said it had taken from a cloud backup hosted by a third-party service and not directly from Bonobos' own network. In a statement, the company said, So far, we have found no evidence of unauthorised parties gaining access to Bonobo's internal systems. What we have discovered is an unauthorised third party was able to view a backup file hosted in an external cloud environment. We contacted the host provider to resolve this issue as soon as we became aware of it. The company also said it would be forcing password resets for any account for which passwords may have been compromised. We're emailing customers to notify them that their contact information and encrypted passwords may have been viewed by an unauthorised third party. Payment information was not affected by this issue, the company said. We should also point out that Bonobo's apparel can be purchased via the Walmart website, but there is no evidence at all that any customers who purchased Bonobo's clothing via Walmart have been affected. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Well-known hacking group Shiny Hunters has leaked 1.9 million Pixlr user records, including information bad actors could use to carry out targeted phishing and credential stuffing attacks. Pixlr is a free online photo editing application. Experts believe that the alleged Pixlr database that Shiny Hunters has posted may include 1,921,141 user records. It's understood that the records contain email addresses, login names, SHA-512 hash passwords, country whether the user had signed up for a newsletter and other sensitive information. It's understood that shiny hunters have shared the database on the dark web. The hacker claimed that they stole the database during their November breach of 123RF. In the 123RF data breach, which we brought details to you of back in episode 117 of the GDPR Witchy Show, Hackers stole over 8.3 million user data records. Those records contained email addresses, MD5 hash passwords, company names, phone numbers, addresses, PayPal email addresses and IP addresses. Shiny Hunters has also been responsible for data breaches at Minted, Chatbooks, Wattpad and others. We've approached Pixlr for a statement but have not received anything as we go to broadcast. If we do receive any update from Pixlr, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. California already has the CCPA, which is to quite some degree modelled on GDPR, but it now also has the CPRA. It should be pointed out that the CPRA is only applied to companies above a certain size. The CPRA expands on CCPA's requirements by introducing more principles and requirements. CPRA prevents businesses from collecting personal information that is incompatible with the purpose for which the data was collected. This is very reminiscent of the GDPR's purpose limitation principle. Businesses will be prohibited from holding data for longer than reasonably necessary, which reflects GDPR's storage minimization principle. 
and businesses will be prohibited from collecting more data than is reasonably necessary for the disclosed purpose, which reflects, again, GDPR's data minimisation principle. Whilst the CCPA did not include GDPR's requirement for controllers and processors to maintain records of all their processing activities, CPRA gives the new regulatory authority the power to create regulations that will specify record-keeping requirements for businesses to demonstrate compliance with CPRA. As anyone who's worked with GDPR for any time will know, there is a requirement to undertake data protection impact assessments. Indeed, it's something which we spend a lot of time ourselves helping companies with. The CPRA will give the California Privacy Protection Agency the power to issue regulations requiring businesses whose processing of consumers' personal information presents significant risk to consumers' privacy or security to perform an annual cybersecurity audit or submit a risk assessment to the Privacy Protection Agency on a regular basis. One area where both CCPA and CRPA do differ from GDPR, though, is that there's no requirement to appoint a data protection officer or DPO. Another difference comes with regulation, because under CCPA, there's no dedicated supervisory authority. At present, no state in the US has any privacy regulator. The CCPA did provide for fines for violations, but fines issued under CCPA were enforced through the Office of the California Attorney General. The CPRA, however, establishes a new dedicated supervisory authority for data privacy, the California Privacy Protection Agency, which will have authority to investigate and enforce data privacy legislation. This is arguably the biggest single step that the CPRA takes towards the move towards GDPR. It will make California the first state in the US with a dedicated data privacy supervisory authority. The authority is intended to be funded from the general fund, with $5 million allocated to it in its first year and $10 million per year thereafter, although, of course, some of these costs may be recouped by fines. As more becomes clear on CPRI, we will bring more details to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, but it is interesting to see how California is very much modelling itself on GDPR. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. The longer GDPR has become established, the more court precedents have been set, which help in determining legal cases. And there was another precedent set recently in the case of Soriano versus Forensic News and others. The case tested the territorial reach of GDPR and represents the first UK judgment dealing with the territorial scope of GDPR. The claimant, Walter T. Soriano, sought the court's permission under the UK civil procedure rules to serve proceedings on the defendants who were all domiciled in the USA. The defendants included Forensic News, a US-based investigative journalism site, its owner and a number of journalists who had contributed to the website. Mr Soriano's complaint related to 10 internet publications and various social media postings, including on Facebook and Twitter, published by Forensic News relating to various topics including former President Trump's financial affairs and the activities of PSY Group, the private Israeli intelligence company in Ukraine, allegedly connected to Mr Soriano. The judgment notes that the various articles and publications made extremely serious allegations against the claimant and amounted to a sustained assault on the claimant and his reputation. Mr Soriano sought to bring various claims against the defendants, including under GDPR for malicious falsehood, harassment, misuse of private information and libel. As the defendants were domiciled in the US, Mr Soriano applied for the court's permission to serve out these claims. The court had first to determine whether Mr Soriano was entitled to bring a GDPR claim in the UK at all. 
To this end, Article 79, Paragraph 2 of GDPR states that proceedings may be brought before the courts of the member state where the data subject as his or her habitual residence. As Mr Soriano had been habitually resident in the UK since 2003 and a British citizen since 2009, he satisfied the criteria under Article 79, Paragraph 2 for bringing his claim in the UK. Having determined that Mr Soriano was permitted to bring his claim in the UK, the court moved on to consider the merits of the claim. In order to have a viable claim under GDPR, Mr Soriano was required to establish that the publication of his personal data fell within the total scope of GDPR under either Article 3, Paragraph 1 or Article 3, Paragraph 2. Article 3, Paragraph 1 is about establishment and the GDPR applies to processing of personal data in the context of the activities of an establishment of a controller or a processor in the union regardless of whether the processing takes place in the union. Union in this case meaning the European Union. In considering the facts and application of Article 3, Paragraph 1, the court considered the decisions of the Court of Justice of the European Union in the cases against Google, Spain and Amazon. The court held that the defendants were not established in the UK for purposes of GDPR, with just noting that the defendant had no employees or representatives in the UK. In addition, while Forensic News did have some readers in the UK, the judge took the view that the handful of UK subscriptions to a platform that solicits payments for services on an entirely generic basis is unlikely to amount to arrangements which are sufficient in nature, number and type to fulfil the language and spirit of Article 3, Paragraph 1, and amount to being stable. Under Article 3, Paragraph 2, Subparagraph A, the GDPR applies to the processing of personal data of data subjects who are in the Union by controller or processor not established in the Union, where the processing activities are related to the offering of goods or services, irrespective of where the payment of the data subject is required to such data subjects in the Union. Mr Soriano argued that the defendants met this test because defendants' publications are in English, their website solicits donations in sterling and in euros, includes a store with branded merchandise, and accepts shipping addresses in the UK. In deciding this point, the court referred to the European Data Protection Board's guidelines on territorial scope and concluded there was no evidence to suggest that Forensic News was targeting its goods or services to anyone in the UK. In addition to the extent that Forensic News was offering services to individuals in the UK, the court held that offering the services needed to be related to Forensic News' core activity, i.e. journalism. The court did not consider that this was the case. Under Article 3, Paragraph 2, Subparagraph B, the GDPR applies to the processing of personal data of data subjects who are in the Union by a controllable processor not established in the Union, where the processing activities are related to the monitoring of the behaviour as far as their behaviour takes place within the Union. Mr Soriano argued that because Forensic News site used cookies to target online advertising, it engaged in monitoring of people in the EU, and thus GDPR's territorial scope test was met. Similar to the position taken with the offering of goods and services, the court held that the use of cookies for behavioural advertising purposes was not related to Mr Soriano's complaint. In its judgment, the court stated the defendant's journalist activities have been advanced not through any deployment of these cookies. Having taken all these factors into account, the court concluded that Mr Soriano had no arguable case under GDPR. It is, of course, possible that Mr Soriano may appeal this ruling, and if that happens, we will, of course, bring you updates in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye-bye.